I used to be a teacher, and um, I always thought you could uh, maybe prejudge a teacher by where they have the clock in their classroom. Um, if they have it so they can see it, they probably have some compassion. If they have it where they can't see it, but the students can, there's probably a sadistic element in them <laughs> as you sit there and watch the second hand go backwards. Um, this is just preamble. They've taken away the clock. So you've either got to shiftily look at your phones or if you still wear watches uh, or <laughs> Amelia's doing this saying she'll tell me when it's time to wind up from the back. But I have got my watch. Uh, I can't see it without my glasses. Um, <clears throat> but it looks good. And, uh, you know, we hope, I hope, not to be too long because we have communion, we have the members meeting. Uh, as I was sitting there watching the, the new members join, um, I suddenly worried that maybe it looked like a bit of gerrymandering. Um, get as many members in to pack the vote for what the elders have recommended. <laughs> I promise you we did not ask uh, which way they would intend to vote uh, at the meeting after this service. So it's, it's all completely legit. It does help us with quorum though. So I just make that point here. The quorum for most general meetings is quite low. It's about is it 25%, something like that? But for this one, it's two-thirds of our membership. So we need 50 or 60 people here to, um, to make the vote legit. Okay, enough preamble. Um, mission accomplished. Uh, that's what I've decided to talk about today. Um, next slide. Uh, Sylvester's probably really worried. Um, actually, the next slide as well, because I've gone off script already. And he knows how difficult it is to keep track. But I've had, okay, so a great political hero of mine... Um, sorry, a great political hero of mine, Tony Benn, once said... Let's just see if you're paying attention. Um, Tony Benn. Who's heard of Tony Benn? We can go to the next slide. Um, Tony Benn, he once said this, There is no final victory, as there is no final defeat. There is just the same battle to be fought over and over again. So toughen up. Toughen up. Now, whatever you think of Tony Benn's politics, um, if you look into his life, you will see that he was an extraordinary example of how to live according to your beliefs. He wasn't a Christian, I think he was an atheist. But his political understanding ran through everything he did and said. He gave up his... Uh, inherited title that came from his father. He, was, he became Sir Anthony Wedgwood Ben. He doesn't believe, he didn't believe in honours, and so he gave that up. And everything he did, from living in a, a fairly modest uh, flat, not cl claiming lots of money on expenses, in terms of probity, he was the politician that we wish all our politicians were. And I think he's a great lesson for Christians as to how. How much do we actually allow our, our faith, our beliefs, to affect every area of our lives and our behaviour and our thoughts? But anyway, so he said this. He wasn't talking about um, faith. But he said there's no final victory, just the same old battle. Now, my, my thoughts turned to this idea of mission accomplished because, of course, Today is May the 8th, um, 
if you haven't done your shopping for today, you're, you're out of luck because it's a public holiday. It's 77 years today since the end of the war in Europe. And it's a, a huge event. If you go around Prague with your eyes open, in the most extraordinary places, you will find uh, little plaques on the wall, usually dated May the 7th, because the Prague uprising began on the 5th of May and kind of reached its culmination on the 7th as the Czech people rose up against the occupiers. And in the most bizarre places, outside Alto Kelly at Podbaba, there is a plaque commemorating somebody who died uh, in the uprising. So May the 8th is this huge, huge day for people who lived through it especially. On this day, 77 years ago, Winston Churchill stood on the balcony of Buckingham Palace with the, the king and the royal family. It's king George the something. I'm not really good on history. Um, somebody will tell me. He was a king anyway. And this is what Churchill said. Huge crowds of people. This is your victory. In our long history, we have never seen a greater day than this. And it's impossible, I think, for people of my generation or younger, probably impossible for anyone in this room to understand how that must have felt. You know, we... we um, I still look around at your beautiful faces without masks, and it feels a bit weird, because we've been through this strange time. We maybe have some inkling of what it's like, but we have no, no idea of what that was like for those people. As, as the pandemic started to take hold, um, I was talking to my mum and dad over Zoom, and uh, my mum said, well, they both said, my mum said, I can't think there's been a more terrible time in my life. She's 87. Sorry, mum, if you're watching. Um, I thought, really? I said, really, mum? You spent months and months, maybe longer than that, every night, putting your nightie on, putting your dressing gown on, putting your Wellington boots on, and going down the garden to sleep in the Anderson bomb shelter at the bottom of the garden, and she had to wear a wellies because it was yay high in water. It's not my mum. Um, but this is the kind of shelter she spent night after night after night with the bombs falling. And um, she said, oh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Um, because, you know, she remembers it vividly, but memory fades. Not to mention the uh, occasion, which I still don't really believe, but it did happen, where she had to take her pet rabbit to the butchers because pet rabbit was going to be Sunday lunch. <laughs> that's, as you'll see from the next slide, that's not my mum and that's not her rabbit, but you get the idea. <laughs> Times are tough. It was a momentous occasion when Churchill stood on that balcony and as similar things happened all over Europe, we can't grasp at this distance in time how momentous that was. And so this prompted me, the idea of it being May the 8th, prompted me to think about 
um, things being accomplished, things coming to an end. Tony Benn, of course, he spoke a real truth when he said that you know, things never really come to an end. Anyone who thought that um, 1989, 1990 signified the end of conflict, cold or hot, between the, the notional East and the West, anyone who thought that these scenes in Václavák and repeated all across uh, Central and Eastern Europe, that that meant the end of disunity and disharmony between the East and the West, well, of course, in the last few months, they've had a terrible shock because the same old battle has to be fought over and over again. Because, of course, what we battle is not ideology, but the battle is always between failed, faulty, sinful human beings. And we see being acted out on our television screens now uh, the result of a conflict that really isn't gone away. Just look at the next slide. Just, I was spoilt for choice for pictures of the conflict in, in Ukraine at the moment. That's Mariupol. Likewise, anyone who in 2007 thought that the age of economic boom and bust across the world had finished... Well, we had a shock then, didn't we, that probably the world economies haven't yet fully recovered from. Thursday last week was um, a series of local elections in the UK, and uh, this was one picture that popped up on Twitter that summed up part of the problem, the rise of food banks in the UK because of the incredible increase in poverty amongst ordinary people. So in this one place, you could go left to get your food for the week and go right to vote. We like things to come to an end, uh, especially difficult things. We like them to come to an end. Uh, I've never run a marathon, but I'd be lucky if I was in that state at the end. Um, we like difficulties come to an end, but we also like, you know, to mark when good things come to an end, or celebrate the end of things. Um, over the next few months, uh, in the northern hemisphere, there will be many, many thousands of people graduating from university, which is what it should be. Um, this handsome chap, was that 31 years ago? Um, you're lucky, actually. I couldn't find my graduation photo from um, my bachelor's degree, which uh, famously, infamously, a picture of me in my robes and Ali um, was stolen from our house by some of my students, having discovered it going through our photo albums. And they took it to school and they put it on, their, on the blackboard, I think in the art room where Ali used to teach, as well as changing my face for their profile pictures in my space, if you remember that, shows how long ago it was. Um, and this photo of Ali and me was uh, quite a talking point. It usually went something like this. Mrs. Marshall, what are you thinking? Or pointing at me, 
how did that, and then to Ali, end up with that? <laughs> with a slight look of respect. Um, but good things come to an end. People will be graduating. Um, these days, you graduate high school. You can even rent, I saw to my disbelief, um, caps and gowns to graduate kindergarten or nursery, or you graduate from one class to another. Um, before long, I imagine, you'll have to go through a graduation ceremony before you move from maths to English at lunchtime. Um, but that's just me. Um, but we do like to mark and celebrate the end of things, significant things. And so today we're going to look, you're wondering, when's he going to get around to Scripture? We're going to do it now. We're going to look at a few key events in Scripture where something comes to an end and it's marked in a particular way. Um, at the members' meeting that we've talked about already, we're going to be voting on uh, whether uh, Mike Weigline should be called as our pastor. And whatever happens, whether the answer is yes or no, this is the end of the process. You know, if the vote is no, a new process starts. I've no idea what that looks like. But whatever happens, this is the end of the process. And so for uh, those of us on the search team or the elders who've lived through this for a long time, this feels like... A big day, I said as we were praying before the, the service. It's kind of, it really feels like a big day today. Um, and it is a big day. It's an important day in the life of this church. And then just before the members' meeting, we have communion. Now, communion, of course, is an event which marks the end of something, but also the beginning of something. And We'll come on to that a little bit more later. So the verse that went out with the newsletter, if you read the newsletter, came from the second, book of, uh, second chapter of Genesis. And this is the creation story. And in Genesis chapter 2, uh, we read this. After the six days... It's not what's on the screen. Anyway, my mistake. After the six days of creation, having seen that everything he had created was good. Now we get onto the screen. It says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. It's difficult to think of a more significant event than this. For six days, God had taken nothing and created everything we see around us, everything we can't see, beyond the galaxies that even at our advanced levels of technical skill we can't see. With his word, he created these things. And he marked the end of it. The day of rest, not because he was tired. God doesn't get tired. But it was the end of something, as well as the beginning of something. It was finished. And in perpetuity, we are meant to have a day of rest to signify the end of the week, to recharge our batteries, to start again. Millennia later, 
King Solomon took on the responsibility of building uh, the temple that his father had wanted to build, his father David had wanted to build, and he, he was forbidden to do so. God said to David, you know, there's, there's too much blood on your hands. You're a man of war, and I want my temple to be built by a man of peace. And so it fell to Solomon to put into process and to completion um, what David had wanted to start. And it was a pretty big event. It was, um, you know, if you read the description or if you look at reconstructions of the temple, it was quite, quite the place. And so beautifully built. One of the things my dad always comments on is the, the fact that um, all the stone was shaped and dressed in the quarry. So no metal tools were used in the vicinity of the temple. Perhaps that's one of my dad's favourite things because he was in the building trade eons ago and realises what an achievement that is. Um, measure twice, cut once is even harder if the quarry is hundreds of or tens of miles away. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried to build anything. The thought of trying to make something at a distance from where it's going to be fitted and actually having it fit, for me, is mind-blowing. But it was a big thing. It was a big deal. It took about seven years to build. And at the end, they had a big celebration. They dedicated this temple. This temple was just a building, just walls and decorations. And Solomon gave this great prayer of dedication. Um, And in 1 Kings chapter 8, we read this in verse 23. Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant, David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it, as it is today. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. In verse 56, praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our ancestors. May he never leave us, nor forsake us. May he turn our hearts to him, to walk in obedience to him, and keep the commands, decrees, and laws he gave our ancestors. And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, to be near, be near to the Lord our God day and night, and may he uphold the cause of his servant, and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. And may your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God, to live by his decrees and obey his commands as at this time. 
What a tremendous affirmation of God's faithfulness. Solomon didn't have a, a squeaky clean upbringing. He had a fairly uh, traumatic time of things in many ways. His father, though a great Israeli hero, was no saint. And Solomon knew firsthand of God's faithfulness. And for me, reading those, those verses, this is what leapt out, leapt off the page. Our God does not change. He doesn't change. He, he doesn't need to change because he's always been perfect. You know, I need to change. No offense. You guys need to change. God doesn't change because he doesn't need to change. He has always been perfect. And so Solomon says, Yahweh, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven, above, or on earth below. And what's one of his defining features? You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. Yahweh is God and there is no other. Now, when you look at it, it seems slightly mad. They'd spent seven years building this temple. They had used the finest materials from as far, basically from the known world. They'd cut the trees down in Lebanon and, Lebanon and sailed them as rafts down the coast to then shape them and use them and there was gold and as they processed to the temple they sacrificed sheep and goats that were beyond number. This was a huge thing. It had to be as perfect as possible and it had to be signified in such a huge way and Solomon says, you know what? It's not enough. This wonder of the world, it's not enough. Because it can, it can only be the place where your name rests. It can only be the place where we turn when we want to pray. It can only be the place where we go to make sacrifice. Because you can't live here. The heavens can't contain you. And this wonder that Solomon felt, and I don't think he was disappointed, because this wasn't a new revelation to him, but he wanted to acknowledge that however great this temple was, and great it was, it was still not enough. It could never be enough. There's never enough that we could do. There is no way that you can make a temple where Almighty Creator God could live. And the heavens can't contain them because He created them. He was, and they didn't exist, and He spoke them into being. So they can't contain Him. We're going to skip about a bit now, historically. Um, if we go back from Solomon, to Joshua, if you know your Old Testament. 
Joshua appointed as leader to succeed Moses. Moses, the, you know, the, the, the great leader chosen by God, led his people out of captivity in Egypt, passed on to them God's covenant, the commandments, everything, and yet forbidden from entering the promised land because of uh, his anger, sorry, his disbelief, his disobedience, and you know, the, the children of Israel prevented who had turned down, who had lacked faith to cross the Jordan the first time. And so when Joshua comes to lead the people into the promised land, this is a huge thing. Um, I'm saying the word huge too often. But God says to Joshua, okay, there's quite a lot of you, so what I'll do is I'm going to part the waters of the, of the Jordan like I did the Red Sea when you were escaping from Egypt. And I want you to get the priests to take the Ark of the Covenant into the, the middle of the river and wait there, and then I want all of you to cross. And then when they follow, the waters are going to come back over. And when you're there, I want you to pick 12 stones from the middle of the river and take them to the other side. Just a little side note here. Um, Sometimes, it just occurred to me when I was reading this, you know, those priests, they probably weren't that young. Um, The ark was pretty heavy. They were probably wearing... uh, Uh, climate unsuitable clothing probably their priestly robes Um, and they had to stand in the middle of the river while all the people went past it wasn't ten minutes I don't know how long it was I don't know how many people they were but they stood there and I thought you know sometimes we can find ourselves feeling static we're doing nothing we're going nowhere We're tired, we're bored, we're weary, we feel physically unequal to the task. That doesn't mean that you're not doing God's work. I'm sure those priests, by the end, were were pretty tired. You know how you pick something up, you think, you know, there's that old thing about philosophy professor who says, you know, what's important about this glass, and it's not whether it's half full or half empty, it's actually how long I have to hold it for. With my enormous manly strength, of course, I can hardly feel this glass, but if I was to hold this here for the rest of... I'm glad Ali laughed. Um, (laughs) If I was to hold this here for the rest of my sermon, which isn't that long, um, it would start to feel heavy. These guys were standing there for a long time, I wonder if they wrestled with, you know, I mean, we're not actually, it's not like we're holding the water back. It's not, you know, we're not, stay there, water, and waiting for the people to pass. They're just standing there holding the ark. And then some of these people, they're going so slowly. Come on, I'm tired. Just because you feel static, bored frustrated 
It doesn't mean that you're not doing God's work. Um, but that was a digression. In, in Joshua, book of Joshua, verse, uh, chapter 4, we read this in verse 8. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord, as Yahweh, had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to their camp, where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan, at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. And they're going to go, you what? Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. I'm also saying the word momentous too much today, but this was a momentous moment. This was the thing that the Israelites had left Israel for. God didn't say, I'm going to take you out of captivity and then we'll think about a plan later. He said, I'm going to take you out of captivity and I'm going to take you to the promised land that's flowing with milk and honey. He had the plan. The Israelites weren't that good at following the plan. But this was it. This was his people going to their promised land that he had promised them for generations. And he didn't want them to forget. The reason we have these plaques on the walls outside Alto Kelly and the reason we have a holiday today on May the 8th and the reason we have these events is because as humans, we forget. The reason we will celebrate communion later is because we forget. And this moment was an end and a beginning. It, was, it really was the end of... I mean, the slavery had ended 40 years before, but it was the beginning of their new life in the land that God had promised to them. And... We need to remember these things. Why are those stones there? God says, well, when people look at these stones, they say, what are they there for? You have a story to tell them. You know, communion is one of these things that God has given us to help us remember. And just like those stones, if somebody says to you, why do you take communion? Well, you have a story to tell them. You have a story of God's faithfulness. As Solomon said in his prayer dedicating the temple, as Joshua is told when he's given these instructions, this is a reminder that our God is powerful. He is almighty and he keeps his word. And he is with his people. Very quick fast forward now 
into the book of John, John's gospel. In chapter 19 of verse 28, we read this, very familiar words. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he'd received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is more astonishing, more significant than any human event. This was the moment when God's purpose was fulfilled. It is finished. This event, its significance, often reminds me of uh, a great line from one of T.S. Eliot's poems, Burnt Norton. And he talks about this. At the still point of the turning world where past and future are gathered. I don't know if Eliot was talking about the crucifixion, but when I think of the crucifixion, this is the still point. This is the point at which the whole of history pivots. Everything changes. This and the resurrection taken together, this is the moment where everything changes. And those three words, it is finished. The whole of history pivots on those words. Because in this case, Tony Benn was wrong. This victory is final. This victory is irrevocable. It can't be changed. It can't be overturned. You know, we're making a decision on a new pastor today. John Waldrop, who was pastor when we, we came, and I think only the, only the uh, Mranskovi predate John Waldrop um, at ICP. No, not only you, no. Anyway, he was here in 2005 when we arrived, and he often used to talk, use a, a Second World War metaphor um, to talk about this. Because sometimes in your daily life, you might not feel like the victory over sin has been won. I go, yeah, not so much. But, and I always found this really helpful. In some ways, if we think of D-Day, the D-Day invasion, once that was finished and secured, the war was over, effectively. There were many, many months of fierce, ferocious, awful fighting and countless deaths before May the 8th, 1945. But the war was over, in effect. And we're in, if you like, in that post-D-Day era. There's no coming back. Satan is defeated. What we live through are the last skirmishes in our lives, in the lives of our church, our families, the world around us. But as a force, he is defeated. 
And now I'm going to say Tony Benn is right again, because that battle for us is the same battle. The battle I fight today against my sinful nature is the same one that I fought yesterday and will fight tomorrow for the rest of my earthly life. But we do it as servants of the victorious king. We fight, but we fight a vanquished enemy. We're on the winning side. Now, as the the music team come up, we're going to turn our thoughts to communion. Another ceremony that, in, in his absolute wisdom, God has given to us. It was the end of Jesus' ministry on earth, and he marked it with a meal. A special meal. It was Passover anyway, so to him and his disciples, it was a special meal. And it's a meal, of course, which goes back to that escape from slavery. It reminds the Israelites that God rescued them from slavery, that he brought them out of Egypt. It was the end of their captivity. And it was a special meal for that reason. But of course, for Jesus, it especially was a precious meal. In Luke 22, in verse 14, we read this. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Last week we heard when Mike was preaching about that breakfast that Jesus cooked his disciples on the, on the beach when they'd been fishing. Uh, Mike, if you're watching, I don't think you went enough into the detail of fresh fish cooked over charcoal maybe with some wild garlic and drizzled with olive oil. I think you could have, you know, made more of that. But what a special meal. He was with his friends. Um, Mike talked last week, didn't he? I think about if you've been on a retreat. And I was thinking, if, you know, if you've ever been on a, on a short-term mission, maybe two weeks or a month somewhere, by the end of that time, you feel like you are... Blood brothers and sisters with those people that have served with you, particularly if there's been hardship involved in that mission trip. Um, You know, you've eaten together, you've slept together, you've... And I've been on some of these trips, trust me, some people's personal hygiene. You know, you don't want to sleep in the same room as them, but this is what you do. Jesus had known and lived with these guys for three years. They had eaten together, they had slept together, they had walked together, they had worked, they'd been chased out of places. The fully human Jesus loved these guys because they were band of brothers, Terry. they, They had been through everything together and he knew that this phase was ending it was the end of his ministry he said I've, I've, it, I have eagerly desired it sounds so formal you know 
If I said to you, if you came around to my house with me and I said, I've eagerly desired to have this meal with you today, <laughs> I get a feeling that that's kind of not how it was said. I've been so looking forward to this. Yeah? I just, just want to have this meal with you guys. He knew everything about them. As a man, he knew everything about them because he'd seen them go through fire with him. And he wanted them to remember this meal. And so, we also follow his command to remember this meal, this last meal that he had before his suffering with his disciples. And, and we have really simple rules. I mean, Dan was saying our membership requirements are pretty simple. We have really simple rules here. If you love God, if you know Jesus as your personal saviour, if you try in your life to follow him, if you've committed yourself to being his disciple, then this is a celebration we want to share with you. If that doesn't apply to you, then just you know, sit there and, and think about what are these people doing? Why are they, what does this mean? Well, what it means is that on that cross... Jesus paid the price for my sin. On that cross, by giving his body, which is what the bread represents, by shedding his blood, which is what the, the juice or the wine represents, he took on himself, his perfect self, the price of my sin. So if you don't, if you haven't taken part in that gift, if you haven't accepted that gift from him, as we take the bread and the wine, think about that. It, it's, it's the most simple and the most complex thing you will ever do in your life. It takes a simple step of faith and a lifetime of exploration and struggle and obedience and learning. But it starts with the simplest step. So, when the, the band begin to play, we've got uh, communion places here, here, and here. Again, COVID's not gone away completely, so try not to crowd. I think there's, some, there's one at least upstairs. Take the bread, take the cup, take it back to your seat. Um, on this occasion, eat it, drink it in your own time, because Jesus' sacrifice was for everyone but it was for you as an individual. And so you can acknowledge that with your own thoughts and prayers. In, in verse 16 of that same chapter of John, we read this, Jesus is speaking, for I tell you, uh, this meal he's talking about, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. 
The bread and the wine, it's so simple. And it's so profound. It's difficult to imagine with the, the bread as we have it, but you know, Jesus took the loaf and he broke it, saying, this is my body. So he knew, he gave them a, a foretaste of what was going to happen and pouring out the wine, his blood being poured out for us. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are the only true God. You are Yahweh, the creator God. You spoke this universe into being with the words of your mouth. You formed us out of the dust of the earth. And when we failed, when we fell, when we sinned against you, you provided the answer and you gave your son your perfect son who lived that perfect life and died the death that he didn't deserve because of our sin and so as we take this bread and we take this wine in honor of his command we do it in remembrance of him and we do it somberly because of the great price he paid for us and we do it with joy and celebration Because when he rose again, death was defeated. Our eternity with you, praising you and in the presence of Almighty God, was sealed. And so we we take it in joy and in sorrow. And uh, we do it and we tell you that we love you and we thank you and we want to worship you this morning.